Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to the Vet Gurus, Brendan here with Mark, episode 264, Thursday October the 20th, 2022. And thank you, Mr. Intro Man, for tapering yourself off there a little bit quicker than usual so we can get <laughs> stuck into things. How are you, Mark? You would think that that sort of thing would be so e- easy to organise, but I know the effort that you've gone to to get Mr. Intro Man to taper more nicely. I'm great, Brendan. Just great. Excellent. And I'm I'm well, although a little bit, um, a little bit probably more nasally than normal. I went out and managed to nick home yesterday because our first consult in the afternoon had cancelled, and I quickly nicked home at lunch and mowed the lawn, Mark. And being <sighs> spring here, Mark, um, the lawn has gone nuts as usual. And I went out for a walk just before and with Annie and uh, noticed the lawn's already grown back. <laughs> but but um, soon after I made the lawn, uh, the old hay fever hit pretty badly and the nose was running, the eyes were stinging, and I did have been taking the hay fever, t- hay fever tablets. I think it's going to be a bad season this year, Mark. Last year wasn't too bad for me, so I don't take the tablets all the time. And then popped another tablet this morning, but I'm still a little bit, a little bit, sneezing and a little bit of a runny nose so I was fine at worked work today until lunchtime and then um, this afternoon off work went for another walk and then it started again <laughs> but oh, them's the breaks mark um yeah otherwise I am well and all the best to the areas around Australia, especially here in Victoria, mate, with the floods. We've had some decent floods, and I know in New South Wales you've had it. So the the rivers are swollen and swelling and burst of their banks, uh, several of them. And I think it would be a horrible thing, wouldn't it, have your house filled with mud and sludge and a lot of them end up being write-offs, don't they? It would be a sort of insidious little thing watching that water flow and flow and... Yeah. Well, one of our researchers uh, has who lives on the the bank of the mighty Murray is um, talking about how it's slowly rising and and uh, but he seems pretty confident it won't get to the house. But um, geez, like you said, it'd be nerve wracking, Brendan, to be watching the water slowly in its muddy tone slowly swirl around the the house yard and and um, yeah. I feel for all those people who have had the water get closer and closer to their home, isolate them, um, and uh, and but it is pleasing to see. I I hope this is lessons learned here in Australia because it was a pretty disorganised response twelve months ago and and a few months ago again when Lismore was smashed. But it certainly seems to yes. support the emergency services, the Australian Defence Force. They seem just I don't know to. Um, be a little bit more organised. So I feel for the people at Lismore who suffered through that and twice and uh, didn't get the best of, of emergency services. Now to see uh, their wonderful uh, friends and colleagues in Victoria benefit from the, what they went through. But at least it's improving, Brendan. 
Yes, until the next natural disaster hits, whatever that may be. Hey, Brendan, have you, have you um, with your cold and whatnot, have you had your fourth COVID vaccine? Yes, I had my fourth one a few, fair few months ago, Mark. Yes. Uh, I just had my fourth one yesterday, um, and it was the Moderna bivalent yes. one um, that I think has uh, some of the original Wuhan strain um, and uh, one of the Omicron variants. Um, and crikey, my arm is so sore. I, can't, I haven't had a vaccine reaction, um, but, geez, I, I can barely lift anything with my left arm. Hmm. Yes, I, I just felt a bit sort of fluey um, with one or one or two of those ones just for twelve hours or so. I remember my very first, as you remember, my very first AstraZeneca. I was knocked for six for with a fever for all, mm. at least at least twenty four hours. Yeah, but no long term effects, unfortunately. Um, fortunately, yes. So there we go, enough COVID news, Mark, and enough natural disasters. <laughs> I'm going to jump into something positive. But before that, shout out to all our listeners, vetgurus at gmail.com to send us a email. We did get a reply from Nick, who we spoke about one of his um, questions regarding thin-skinned um, birds and and reptiles and hernias. Um, thanks, Nick, for your reply. Keep the emails coming. Um, so my re- market's a review. And it's something we've been banging on about for a long period of time. The importance it's in Amphibian and Reptile Conservation Journal, the importance of enrichment for advancing amphibian welfare and conservation goals, a review of a neglected topic. And it isn't saying anything we haven't already mentioned, Mark, but it's good to see something actually published about this. And basically it's a summary of they their review supports the contention that there may be important consequences of enrichment for both captive welfare and ex situ conservation success in amphibians. Interestingly enough, Mark, it's a pretty basic sort of setup, but a good review um, in that they looked at studies of enrichment in amphibians and Looking through that table there, I don't know whether you've seen it, the type of enrichment investigated with these studies included mainly basic things like shelter provision, um, were at least half of them, um, substrate type uh, feeding enrichment uh, with them, uh, and a few others had some more um, different um, complex sort of um, enrichment protocols like water depth and aquatic mazes and things like that mark but most of them was just basic shelter provision and surprise surprise we had positive results like they were less likely to try and seek shelter during daytime (laughs) if they had a shelter there they'd just go in it and actually use it Um, the there was improved general welfare and general aspect and condition of animals and and you know growth rates etc increased foraging duration increased duration between prey capture events and and reduced rapid feeding when we had um, um, some of those feeding provisions, but also the shelters as well. So, you know, nothing that we would think wouldn't occur with provision of a little bit of environmental enrichment. And the sad thing is the review is suggesting that maybe we should provide enrichment to amphibians because we don't provide it in a lot of these 
situations, especially, I suppose, laboratory situations, Mark. So it's a good review, Mark, and it's good to see that uh, the news is getting out there, Mark. Um, the bad news is we're not mentioned in the um, summary <laughs> in the there. Review. <laughs> in the review of over, you know, 50 um, references there. That's a bit disappointing. But apart from that, it's a good paper, Mark. I think it is a good paper, Brendan, and uh, before we came on to air, I was telling you that um, that I'd just stripped down and, and redone the, the enclosure I have some tree frogs in and, um, and uh, providing them with a variety of perches and plants and, um, and textures and, and ensuring they have a, a water feature, a waterfall, um, uh, making sure we, we, we have a rain arrangement so that uh, they've got um, different temperatures in the water. And, um, yeah, it's just I think um, I, I feel um, that those animals uh, lead a better quality life as a consequence of um, trying to provide them with some environmental enrichment. Um, so I think, yeah, it's sad that we weren't mentioned as a primary reference. <laughs> But um, it's good that the word is getting out there, Brendan. Excellent. And I'm sure those froggies will be glad that they happen to score your household, Mark. <laughs> and so my, what have you got for us? My story has to do with, um, well, you know what a, what a fan I am, what a fanboy I am of um, virtual reality. Um, and uh, the story I have uh, talks about the use of uh, virtual reality to help um, uh, as an educational tool um, in the circumstances of dog aggression. Now, I don't suppose it comes as any surprise to any of our veterinary colleagues that um, that people these days don't, you know, I sort of have this, um, I imagine that... Uh, a couple of generations ago, uh, young people as they were growing up and wandering around the bush or out in the paddock or in their country town, um, that they would come across stray dogs and they would learn dog uh, behaviour. They would understand the signals that dogs provide um, that would give you a clue that things are about to turn south. But... Uh, that doesn't happen anymore. People don't spend that time with stray dogs. Uh, the councils have been so effective. The lo our local government authorities have been so effective at managing uh, dogs and limiting the incidence of stray dogs that um, that people often don't have any experience with dogs in those circumstances in which they might be aggressive. And and a um a virtual reality dog known as Dave the dog-assisted virtual environment, um, is being set up to explore if humans could recognise and interpret the signs of dog aggression, and if they can't, maybe to help them learn without causing any trouble to a dog. Um, and obviously uh, those circumstances uh, where people uh, are involved in virtual reality are an excellent opportunity for very realistic learning experiences. So I think this is a good thing. Um, the sort of behaviours that the virtual dog might display includes licking its lips or yawning, front paw lifting, backing away, barking and growling and showing its teeth. Um, and, um, and yeah, the uh, initial participants uh, behaved and interacted with the model in a manner that you know, suggested like it was a live dog. Um, 
So, yeah, I think, um, uh, interestingly enough, in the initial experiments, three participants still got close enough to the aggressive virtual dog to end up getting to, to end up being bitten if things continue. So, um, so yeah, I think this is a great thing, Brendan, um, and I'd be all for it. I'd be first to put the goggles on and uh, see, see. And, you know, you'd, you'd be pushing it you'd be the into one, the wall. <laughs> yeah, you'd be the one get, getting bitten, and uh, I just hope they have some sort of um, tactile feedback that when you do get bitten, you have some, you know, little trap around your forearm that clamps down on you to simulate being actually bitten mark uh, <laughs> when i do it i'll um we'll we'll video it from, <laughs> from with not inside the vr environment and right. it'll make a hilarious video yes um the virtual dog i wonder yeah i think they said what it was a labrador didn't they yeah. um, as, how, as, uh, how long do you think they workshop the name uh dave yeah uh, you could imagine if they left it to me, it would be coming up with some pretty bizarre names there. Yeah, we won't go down that track, Mark. Yes, good good, um, good story, Mark, good story. Um, I think with that we'll jump into our, our main topic this week, which we sort of covered a few times previously in, in various episodes, vetgurus.com is where you can access them. But um, we're just going to summarise it again because it's a very common a common topic and a common – it's one of the first questions asked by a new client, isn't it, Mark? What is my reptile? Is it a boy or is it a girl? Is it male or is it female or is it other, Mark? So sex identification in reptiles, a bit of a – Rapid fire brief summary of our thoughts on that methods to perform the sex identification. What can we do to help us assist that, you know, um, surgical or otherwise? And our approaches to it, Mark, our little tips of doing that. So let's jump into it, Mark. Um, how often is that one of the first questions within the first five minutes, or certainly within that first consultation, is my reptile? A male or a female? To it's, me, it's virtually hundred percent. I was going to say it's vir oftentimes it's the reason for yes. uh, people coming in. It, it is very, very common. Um, maybe approaching a hundred percent of um, of those first consults is the question asked. Um, the other thing that sometimes happens in those consults is that uh, we might have an opinion about the uh, the sex of the individual. Uh, animal and the clients have been informed by a breeder or some bloke on the internet that uh, that their animal is the opposite of our opinion. That's happened to me quite a few times, Brendan. Yes, and the sad thing with those ones, if, if they have, you know, the, especially if it's a young child's pet and they desperately wanted a male reptile or a female reptile and it happens to end up going home, the opposite sex, they can be very disheartened. And I've had the odd, like your opinion on this, Mark, I've had the odd client who's, who's pre-warned us and they said, it's a male. <laughs> Please don't say it isn't a male, even if it isn't. Um, you know, mark it on your notes. But in any conversations with our, with our child, please please um, refer to it as male. Have you had that? Yes, and it is very, very difficult, very difficult. Um, but I think um, as long as we uh, 
accept that for medical purposes we know the true sex of the animal because that's the problem, isn't it, that the health issues that arise as a consequence of sex are entirely different um, and the risks and uh, what to expect at different times of the year even, um, the results of blood tests all are dependent on that sex. So if we're aware medically, that's good. And, and if, um, you know, I often talk to clients about a... Um, you know, the animal's perceived gender and um, the medical sex. And um, just like the real world, we're happy to respect what anyone thinks their, uh, their, their gender is. Um, but for medical purposes, we need a, a bit of an accurate idea. Yes. So let's get into it, Mark. So what's your first recommendation for this process for pets who are not used to determining the sex identification of, of a reptile presented to them? Well, it's it, it, preparation. You need to be prepared. And it's a, um, you know, there are medical many medical situations where I have bought myself some time in the consult, stepped out, um, phoned you, messaged you, gotten onto VIN, talked to some of my other extensive network and, um, and piece together something uh, before I have to go back into the consult. But this is one of those situations where you probably don't want to be doing that. Um, you do want to do a little bit of preparation. And because it's such a universal question, um, being aware that a bearded dragon is coming in and you're almost certain, you know, first consult, you're almost certain to be asked what sex it is. Make sure you're aware of the particular... Uh, physical characteristics of that species which might give you a clue and also be aware that there's some species that you're not going to be able to do that uh, during a, a uh, external examination in a console without some intervention without some action on the animal or, and there's going to be other species that even you know even if you handle the animal and, and manipulate certain things, you're still not going to be able to tell without even more aggressive intervention. So th preparation. That's a, that's a key point that, Mark, the whole, if you don't know, don't guess, uh, with with um, any species, you know, even an inexperienced vet with little puppies or kittens, um, don't, don't call it a male or a female if you don't know and um, you're, it'll bite you on the bum um invariably won't it um and this it's it's amazing how many people respect you if you end up saying look i don't know whether it's about sex in um, sex identification and reptiles or some other aspect of veterinary medicine um they, right. they appreciate the fact and you say look i don't know at the moment let's investigate and this is what we need to do to to determine the sex of that species, um, these are, this is a process we need to go down as far as diagnostics, and even more so with a with a, with any other medical sort of issue with them. Um, that they appreciate it, don't they? Rather than that, rather than making that, you know, assuming that you know everything, which you never do, and 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 making a guess. So that's one of my key takeaways i think with this you know if you don't guess say if you don't know and, and with those younger animals it can be a challenge with 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 the younger um species of of, of any animal and a, a very common thing i'll do with a one of those if i can't determine that sex um 
ideal, um, easily when they're young. I say, look, come back, come back in a month, two months, six months if it's a reptile, and we'll we'll do the measurements or we'll do the do the workup um, when when the animal's got a bit bigger, where we may be able to determine it much more easily. So, as far as the actual methods, Mark, do you want to jump into some of the methods that we may consider using with that reptile in front of us? In well, the probably the most common um, uh, sorts of techniques that we use are um, trying to recognise the, um, you know, for bearded dragons would be the, the probably the most common one that we would get asked. And, of course, the, the external characteristics, the shape of the the uh, base of the tail on the ventral surface, um, whether there's two bulges there representing the the inverted hemipenes, or whether there's a um, you know a normal rounded shape, uh, as in the case of the females, um, and those uh, femoral pores, we keep looking in bearded dragons at those. So those external characteristics, if you're familiar with them, can give you a pretty good idea about. Uh, about the sex of a bearded dragon and so uh, being aware of those having a look at some pictures uh, handling some of those lizards so you're familiar with what's normal um, and then uh, then you're obviously much happy to make those uh, that estimation on the external appearance there's also yes. um uh, and some, go on you go you're going so, to talk about so and there's there are some excellent not just in the veterinary um, online communities, but even with Dr. Google, some excellent videos of of those external sort of um, um, appearance, sex identification with with a, with a range of reptiles. The other groups that you can often tell fairly readily, even from a young age, are some species like the like the geckos, Mark, um, with, with the sort of swollen base of the tail in the males compared with the females. Um, and the turtles. Some, turtles. Yeah, the turtles with the tail length, shape and size. So um, I encourage vets who are inexperienced to, to if, and if you know, if you have time, which we all a little bit push for, find in um, time, and you know there's a consultation coming in with a reptile species you haven't seen before. Um, poke around on on the on the websites and that, and have a look at the various pictures of, of males and females of them to give you a better better feel for it all. Um, with and and when you see those common species like the bearded dragons, you, you, you fairly quickly you'll become quite experienced with with doing that um, sex identification um, without doing any of the further even minor invasive um, processes that we're going to talk about. And the first one include, including with that, which is a very common one, especially for snakes, is the technique of probing, which we've gone into detail in a, in a previous podcast. And, and the basics of probing, um, a, a snake is using a, a blunt metal probe. And if, for those of you who haven't heard of this before, just do a, yeah, do a Google search for reptile probe and sex, sex identification probe and you can purchase them quite readily it's just a blunt ended stainless steel probe of various sizes and what we're doing is we're, we're inserting that probe at the, into the cloacal region pointing it towards the tail base and there are two little pockets on either side of the tail base and the pocket is much deeper in the male so the probe will go much further down because we're actually inserting that probe into the 
into the hemipanel pocket. Um, the females do have a little pocket there, but it's certainly not the hemibanes because it's a female and it will go a lot deeper in the males. And you can look up charts for the probe in depth and we count how many subcaudal scales the probe goes down towards the tip of the tail and we then give our opinion as far as the, the sex of that animal. And typically with, with probably 99% of the species worldwide, the pocket will only be two to four subcortical scales depth in the in the females and in the males, and a thing from four to six to you know twelve tip, you know, and a lot of them eight to twelve the distance. Yeah. So well, it's a pretty simple technique. You just lubricate the probe slightly. It's slightly uncomfortable for the for the snake. It really does need ideally you know a second person to hold the snake gently and firmly to to allow you to do the probing um being aware that it's a good way to collect a fecal sample as well isn't it mark (laughs) uh, hopefully not over you almost invariably it lands on you so you don't even have to um uh you know have anything to put it in (laughs) yes yes so the probing technique um is is commonly used in in the snakes it's sometimes used in other other reptiles um, that well, some of the lizard species as well, um, but it can be a bit of a challenge with them. What else have we got, Mark, for sex identification in reptiles? I was just going to mention about the probing, Brendan. Um, the the um, gentle, you said it. Um, be firm, but be gentle. It's very easy with a stainless steel probe to slide it, you know, too far in those females, and um, and you do can get into trouble. I've definitely seen. Uh, infectious uh, pericloacides um, occur as a result of over-exuberant uh, probing by inexperienced um, operators. And so just being a bit careful, I think it is a delicate area. Be gentle. Um, but I think, um, you know, the the uh, in a lot of the um, smaller lizards where you can't uh, um, see external features, some gentle manipulation around the base of the tail can allow you to prolapse that hemipenes, um, and at different ages that can be a little bit easier in particular species. It's uh, often referred to as popping the hemipenes. Um, yes. it's, uh, um, it does take a little bit of dexterity and positioning things just right and getting the pressure just right, uh, but it's a, a very useful technique when you can manage it because... Geez, it doesn't leave much when you do get a, uh, 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 a hemipenes prolapsing. You've popped it out. You can be certain that's a male. Um, it's one of those techniques, I think, that if you don't get a, a uh, um, prolapse, if you don't pop anything, it's uh, much harder to be definitive that that's a female. It may just be a male that's difficult to pop. Yep. And... Jumping back to sort of semi-related to that, Mark, with the with the uh, probing, you, know, you do occasionally have a female that or a male that probes sort of that middle distance in between the you know male and the female reported probing lengths of them. And um, with those ones, I tend to um, I do two things. One is um, I, I and I do that as a routine anyway. Probe both sides um, in the individual. 
um, and that often helps differentiate it rather than just probing one side um, or I may get the animal back um, or I will get the animal back at another time because what may be happening there is you do have a male for instance and there's a big hemipenal plug that's obscuring the you know stopping the um, probe going the full depth that it would in the male there and you're sort of thinking or oh, is this a female or a male that's just not probing quite deep enough so that's one little tip for that there um, so if we tried our external and another thing with the external appearance which we sort of touched on that we um, didn't talk about mark is is the um, colorations and you know come big crest in some of the um, lizards for instance or a um, very very prominent sort of um, red color in some of the lizards for instance in some of the dragon species compared with the with the females so you may be able to um, determine the, the the sex of them just from the external sort of coloration and and things like not just those um, um, femoral pores for instance or swelling around the the tail base in the in the males there definitely the what case else do we have well i think then we start to get towards the more invasive things and i've uh uh, stuck an endoscope in a number of uh, reptile species. It's not as easy as um, as with birds because uh, reptiles have uh, no air sacs extending into the caudal abdomen. Um, it does mean that it's it's a little bit more difficult to get your positioning right and to make sure that you've got a good view. And sometimes you have to insufflate the abdomen with a little bit of gas um, to ensure that you do get a decent view. There are times when other forms of uh, uh, imaging will give you the answer, and um, and certainly uh, with those goannas that um, have uh, bones in their hemipenes, hemibacula, um, they, um, they, that can be a useful way to uh, be fairly confident that you have a male or female by taking radiographs. So some diagnostic imaging with ultrasound or uh, radiographs, depending on the species, are an additional technique. Yes, absolutely. Now, I, I just thought of one other related thing when you were saying that but it popped out of popped out of my head oh that's right with the probing um uh, and um then jumping onto the end endoscopy the other method that is is favored by some people i think it's a bit of an acquired technique although there's a few papers out there saying it is a fairly accurate technique and that's injecting a contrast agent into the uh into the region where those um those um, little pockets are mark um, and then taking a radiograph of that region <laughs> have, you, have you done that method? I've, I've tried it brendan and you know the idea being that you um you by contrast me media you highlight the inverted hemipenes and you get that you know the larger demonstration but every time i try and do something like that with contrast medium i must just be the clumsiest i splash it around everywhere on the outside <laughs> you can't tell is that bit of contrast medium in the hemipenes or have i smeared it on the outside and um so i haven't can't say my technique is very good with that and i can't say that i've had good success yeah, but i'd have to come some I'd hate to come to your really clinic well. if I needed <laughs> some chemotherapy, Mark. Uh, you'd be splashing it around the room, would you? That, well, well, you're a bit more careful with that. <laughs> everyone uh, gets a dose of chemotherapy. 
No, we, it's actually the occupational health and safety risks associated with chemotherapy. We used to do quite a fair bit of it, um, but the quite rightly, the um, the as the medications become more available, the more effective and, of course, more dangerous medications become more available, um, the uh, occupational health and safety requirements have become very onerous. And so we refer to specialist practices now for that. So you're pretty safe to come and visit, Brendan. Glad to hear, Mark. Glad to hear. So uh, we mentioned endoscopy. What about jumping in there um, and, um, oh, I suppose that's what you're talking about. Have you ever tried shoving the scope down the actual um, sulcus, down the little pocket there, Mark? Do you mean like uh, into the cloaca to try and identify the intracloacal structures or do you, yeah. are you talking? Yeah. Um, yeah, we, I've tried that a number of times um, and I, once again, I've, there's been some some times when I just, you get a great view of the opening of the, the oviduct and you can clearly identify that as a female um, and yep. there probably a majority of times I'm, 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 left with a question mark and doing the same thing you do we'll we'll get this animal back in 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 eight or ten weeks and and uh repeat the procedure and and tweak it somehow to make it more effective so i'm like you i think it i i I really think it's important not to say things when you don't know clients uh, don't expect you to know everything and be prepared to say look this time hasn't been successful we're not going to push it uh to the point where we cause damage we'll get back later and there are other sort of peripheral methods of determining the sex of these reptiles, Mark, and that's when you pick it up on, you know, and it may be sort of confirmation of what you supposedly already knew, and that's doing things like blood screens and, and that, you know, active female reptile um, often has a pretty high calcium level, doesn't it? And, uh, you know, I've been passed over a blood result of... of of many reptiles, whether it's a snake or a lizard, and I, I scan over it and I see a pretty, you know, massive calcium spike in that um, animal, and I'd say, "Oh, this is a, you know, female, isn't it?" And they'd say, "Well, how'd you know that?" Yeah. Um, so, so that's, um, you know, there's a little bit of a, a confirmatory. I certainly wouldn't be using it as the only way of determining the um, sex identification of them on just by looking at the the blood calcium level, but it's a Another another little additional um, thing that can add up if you've got one of those ones that you might you're not quite um, certain what's happening there. Um, otherwise, we you know go into more aggressive sort of um, surgical methods of shoving that scope in the animal and looking at the actual gonads um, internally in the salamic cavity. What about taking some blood and doing DNA sexing, Mark? What's your thoughts on that? Well, I think that. It would be great. I think I feel very um, uh, reasonably confident about getting uh, good blood samples. And so, if there are um, the opportunity for DNA assessment, then that's good. But as far as I know, Brendan, there aren't any at the moment, and they're not generic. So the companies that can do that for birds, for example, um, uh, they need specific. Um, 
pieces, you know, the DNA primers, um, and um, and if they don't have those, and as far as I know, there's no company at the moment that does have primers for reptiles. So it'd be great, but I don't think you can do it. Good answer, Mark. Yeah, I'd I'd love to have a. a, a a simple blood screen test like we do in the birds to be able to say it's a male or a female, but we don't. Well, we you know, don't. The, the, um, the other thing that uh, clients have asked me, they, they'd prefer me not to stick a needle in and get some blood. They want me to ask the DNA people to use the shed skin, which would be even more uh, interesting that you just have a skin sample and, and, uh, and wrap it up in a plastic bag. That'd be interesting. Yes. Well, you may as well just just um, use a mortar and pestle and grind <laughs> up that skin and throw it in your tea and drink it and then make your prediction based on that, Mark. Um, but yet there's one other we haven't spoken about, and that's behaviour, Mark. Um, and a lot of people forget about behaviour as far as identifying the sex of reptiles in that um especially and that's a bit of a tricky one i, I must admit experienced herpetologists and i've had some um contact with especially um zoo um keepers for instance in the reptile houses who are who are experts at, at determining the, the the sex of a of a uh, reptile just by looking at the particular individual behavior of that and they'd say look that snake's a male because it's the way it's behaving in this particular way at this particular time of the year and um and they've pretty well been spot on mark so um but i think it's a bit of a challenge for us novices like myself with with looking for behavioral um changes with them but it, it is something that we need to also add to the list of potential ways to identify the sex of them. I think you're exactly right. And I think I often find that behavioural stuff and even some evidentiary stuff. So, uh, you know, the, we've, there's been a number of times that we've had people come in and bring um, unshelled eggs, slugs, and they might not look much like eggs. They might just look like cheesy plugs and the people might even think they're um, the... The remnant of, um, you know, the 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 yeah. uh, hemipenal plugs that you were talking about before, um, and um, and yeah, just being aware that those sorts of things might happen, and they might confirm people's opinion about what's going on with the sex of their animal is useful as well. A good history, yep. Brendan. Yes, as we are always banging on about a good history. Well. I think we um, we might leave our listeners to go about their daily or nightly business. Mark, do you have any final more comments before we head out of here? No, I think um, uh, we've covered just about. You know, that's a good potted history, but um, like you said, preparation. Don't be afraid to say I don't know, um, and uh, and just uh, do your research. Whether it's Doctor Google or Vin or calling up uh, someone you know, and just be prepared. Yes, and. If we've missed something, send us an email to vicgurus at gmail.com and we will make note of it and mention it in the next podcast or in a future podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you all next week. 